Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 11. While you're turning there, if you're using one of our hardback Bibles, by the way, it's on page 8. Pretty early in the Bible. While you're turning there, um, let me sort of give you uh, a heads up on where we are. Um, If you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, you probably, maybe perhaps, assume that we have been in Genesis the last few weeks. Uh, That would be a faulty assumption. If you've visited once or twice in the last six weeks, you would wonder how in the world did we get to 11 so quickly. Um, We've been all over the map. I recognize that. We uh, took a break after uh, the Tower of Babel. We were actually started through a series in Genesis some time ago um, and stopped after the Tower of Babel, took a break for a series in Philippians and then just finished... Uh, five weeks on those five solas, those five uh, bumper stickers of the Reformation, and are picking back up right where we left off in the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 11, uh, we actually uh, are going to start in verse 10, and we're actually going to go through verse 9 of chapter 12. However, Uh, It is our practice that we stand when we read God's Word, and that's a lot to stand for. Uh, So I'm only going to read starting in verse 27, uh, but just know that we're, we're including 10 to 26 as well. So let me ask that you, if you're able to stand as we read God's Word together. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Thus far, 
God's Word. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we pray that You would bless the reading and preaching of Your Word to our good and to Your glory. And that You will use it to bring unbelievers to faith, to strengthen believers in their faith, and to grow in us a deeper and greater abiding hope in Your work in our world. Through Christ we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Um, Ancestry.com has uh, discovered a new way to make money. Um, There must be a growing need for this. There must be a growing hunger and desire to know who your people are, uh, where you come from, uh, because uh, now you don't have to go down to some state, county, whatever, records office. And for that matter, you don't even really have to dig around on Ancestry.com and trace your family tree. You can send them spit and they will do a DNA test and tell you your family background, who your people are, where you come from, uh, what your genealogy is. The test, it's only $99. Actually, right now they're running a special. It's $69. So you can save money if you'll do this soon. And then I suppose you take the results of this test over to the British Parliament and you say, see, this proves I deserve a seat in this room. Or I deserve that castle back. Or you take that piece of paper to Italy and say, but no, that original Michelangelo work belongs to my people. It belongs in my family. It should be in my house. See, I think that's the piece I'm not really sure I understand. Like, like, what does it get you? Like, if I can prove, if I can find out that I'm a descendant from Thomas Hooker, the founder of Connecticut, who, by the way, had a son named John and a daughter named Mary, just saying. Could I take that piece of paper back up to Connecticut and there's, you know, a 300-acre farm just waiting on me to claim it? I don't, I guess I'd have a good story to tell but I'm afraid that I would only have a good story to tell. In the ancient Near East, a genealogy was money. A genealogy was property deed. A genealogy, quite honestly, was all you needed. Throughout Jewish history, you can read in in places in the Old Testament, in in post-exile Israel, where Levites are not allowed to serve as Levites because they don't have their family tree. They don't have their their genealogy with them. They can't prove that that's exactly who they are and what they're supposed to be doing. In in the ancient Near East and and Old Testament Testament Israel, your genealogy, your family tree was as good as money. It was as good as your property deed. It was, it was legal documentation. It gave you the right to rule and reign. It gave you the right to that piece of, of dirt 
right over there. It was all you needed in many ways. Remember, I have to remind you, because we're picking back up months and months of delay after the Tower of Babel, after the first ten and a half chapters of Genesis, remember, we're still waiting. At this point in Genesis 11, we don't have an answer yet. We're still waiting 11 chapters of of waiting. Waiting for the promised seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent, even as you heard John just pray a few minutes ago. Who is that seed? Who's the one with the genealogy that says, you see this family tree? I'm that descendant. We're still waiting on that person. That person hadn't arrived yet. That person hasn't gotten here yet. All the way back in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve introduced sin into God's perfect creation, God made a promise to deliver mankind from sin. The seed of the woman is supposed to win. But where is she? Where is that seed? Where is that that promised deliverer? Who can claim the title seed of the woman, therefore I have the right to crush the serpent's head, the power and authority to crush the serpent's head? Well, this passage shows us that God's promise is marching towards fulfillment. First, I want you to see that God's promise is marching toward fulfillment through real history. Do you ever watch Judge Judy? Have you ever watched this show? Real people, real cases. Judge Judy. There's your introduction, right? Real people. And with this, with this really serious, intense voice, real people, real cases. Judge Judy. We have to assume they're telling the truth. We don't have any reason to doubt them. That, that in that courtroom, that arbitration room, that there are real people with real relationship problems that need a real solution. And that's why they begin that way. It's real people, real cases, Judge Judy. The, the show, that, that introduction is, is intended to show that that uh, courtroom is, a, is an actual final decision of some sort. That's part of the point of the genealogy. Particularly the part we didn't read, verses 10 to 26. This is that's what this genealogy is in part, is what it's about. It traces the line from Shem to Abraham. It's still Abram at this point. I'll bounce back and forth, I'm sure. Abram, Abraham, I won't always get it right, but it's the same person you know who I'm talking about. It's, it's Abram's Ancestry.com. He's done the work, he's done the research, and here's his family tree. It traces this line from, from Shem, and in that sense, from Noah, down to Abraham. As trees go, and, and I didn't, we didn't read this, if, if you were to go back and read verses 10 to 26 on your own this afternoon, it's... Um, 
As far as trees go, it's not, a, it's not much of a tree. It, it's more like a, a trunk. No branches, no leaves, no frou-frou, no extras. It's just a trunk that goes straight up in the air. It's, it's Shem to his son, to his son, to his son, to his son, down to Abraham. There's, there's no extra, oh, and there was a brother, and here's some nephews, and here's some cousins. You don't get any of that in this trimetry. You get that in others. Go back to Genesis 5 if you want the, the, the branches and the leaves. You can read that family tree somewhere else. It gives us merely Abram's direct parentage, his direct lineage. It's intended to show that, that Abraham is in this line of uh, the promised seed. And the aim, in part, is to say these are real people. Abraham is real. Eber, Eber, that's the word from which we get Hebrews. That's a real person. That His descendants draw their name from their great, 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 however many greats, grandfather. The people are real. Adam and Eve are real. Noah was real. Shem was real. These are very real people. The events are real. Notice that it traces very quickly a mention of the flood in verse 10. Shem, when he was 100 years old, fathered our Pakshad. Two years after the flood, the, the, the event of the flood was a real event. Terah actually fathered Abram. Shem actually died. He actually had children. Terah actually had three children. The Bible's not fairy tale. The Bible's not myth. The Bible's not make-believe. The Bible's not some idea of some man sitting in some smoke-filled room that he would write and come up with this. Your faith is not actually based on blind faith. It's grounded in real history, real people, real events. There's that scene in Nacho Libre. Do you believe in God? I believe in science. As though those two things, if you believe in history and science, you're on this side of the room. If you believe in God, you're on this side of the room because there's this great chasm. That's not true at all. Christianity, the Bible, is grounded in real history. For that matter, Tolkien, the worlds he created, languages, wrote his own languages to write his books about amazing events and accounts. But they're only in Tolkien's books. It's made up languages. It's made up events, made up places. The Bible is grounded. And this genealogy is intended to show us that, that in part, God's promised fulfillment is working through real history. That it actually takes place in real time and space. God's promise is marching toward fulfillment through real history.
But notice also that God's promise is marching toward fulfillment despite the obstacles. This genealogy is set right on the heels. The first nine verses of chapter 11 have to do with the Tower of Babel. You recall God put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them one command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Take my image. You are my image bearers and I want you to take that image and establish it in every corner of the globe. Wherever there is land, I want my image in that place. What'd they do? They got together, lived in one place, and built a tower in hopes of reaching up to God. And so God confused their languages and dispersed them, spread them out on the earth. They weren't filling the earth. They weren't fulfilling that command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Instead, they were gathering together in one place, trying with their best efforts, weak and feeble and unable as they were, to reach up to heaven. Their goal was, let's build this tower so that we can go to God and make a name for ourselves. That's not what they were commanded to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, make a name for me, God says. Spread my name and my image over all the earth. This genealogy is set right on the heels of that judgment for that sin. For that matter, it begins, verse 10, with mention of the flood. Yet another judgment for yet another disobedience. You remember why the flood came in Genesis 6? God saw that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil all the time. It doesn't get much more wicked than that. The flood came as judgment for sin. Interestingly enough, once Noah and Mrs. Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives get off the ark, we read that same verse. Though the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. We have a genealogy. Despite worldwide flood, despite the deliverance of just two, four, six, eight people in that ark, here's a genealogy. This begins with there are eight people on the earth. It ends with God's people are growing and expanding. There's a genealogy for God's kingdom. You can sort of feel the tension building, I think, in verse 26. Notice that Terah had lived 70 years before he becomes a father. Before chapter 11, that's nothing. But in chapter 11, he's really late. Shem was 100. After that, everybody else was in their 20s and 30s when they started having children. When in Tara's life do you start to get nervous? 
40? 50. Terah's now 50 and childless. His father had a child in his 30s. His grandfather had a child in his 30s. His great-grandfather had a child in his 30s. You're now 50, 60 years old and still without a child. There are obstacles in this list. There's been sin and disobedience and judgment for sin, dispersing people because languages are confused, judging sin, a worldwide flood, leaving merely eight people, and now Tara's 50, 60 years old and still without a child. There are obstacles everywhere you look. It gets worse. Because in verse 30, Sarah is barren. We should be wringing our hands there. I mean, there's a, there's a part of humanity that should be nervous at that point. Wait, wait, wait. You mean to tell me this family tree is just going to stop? You mean to tell me that, that all of this genealogy in chapter 11 has been for nothing? To reach the point where Abram's... So, Haran died. You got death and, and childlessness, barrenness, all in the same place. That should make you nervous. I mean, there's this obstacle. You thought the seed of the woman was coming. And now Sarah can't have children. She's barren. She's not just old. Sarah was old. Sarah's unable. Look at the obstacles that, humanly speaking, should have put an end to God's promise of fulfillment. Look at the obstacles that, that you and I, looking at these ourselves with our own human fleshly mindset, we would look at this and go, well, that's it. It's over. It's too late. We're done. She's barren. She can't have a child. These are, these are insurmountable obstacles from an earthly perspective. Now, you and I have the unfair advantage and perhaps in some ways the unfair disadvantage because this verse doesn't make us nervous because we know the end of the story. We know what ultimately happens that, that eventually, several chapters from now, Sarah's going to have a child. We know that Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. We know that the line continues. So we, we live after the fact. We look back and we read verse 26 and go, yeah, and... We read verse 30 and go, yeah, I, I know, but that's, that's coming. Sometimes we would probably do well to take off the what we know hat and put on our we're the first time readers hat and think like they do. Oh, and by the way, Abram and Sarah are taken from their homeland, their family, the places they knew, their mama and them, the, the places they grew up, all the family connections that they have, and are taken to a strange land, to a new country. For that matter, go to a country, verse 1, I'll tell you when to stop. How's that for struggle? Hey, Abram, Sarah, what I want you to do is I want you to leave. And when you get to where I want you to be, I'll let you know. Uh, 
If only they'd gotten to vacant land. See, they can't even walk in and go, hey, squatter's rights, there's nobody here, the land is empty, I'm going to claim it for myself. I'm going to plant my Abram flag in the ground. I'm going to claim this land for me, for God, for this family. Then he gets there, and we're told, verse 4, the Canaanites are already living there. The Canaanites are already in that land. I, I would have stopped. I would have thrown my hands up in despair and said, really, this is where you wanted me to go? You see all these people? What am I going to do about that? How am I going to overcome them? The Canaanites are already there. Put on your Put on your first-time reader hat for a second. Moses writes to Israelites that have been, that are either still in Egypt or have already been delivered from Egypt and are on their way to the promised land, and they're going to have to deal with, huh, the Canaanites. There's an obstacle that you're going to have to overcome, Israelites. The Canaanites are already there in the land that I'm taking you to. But this genealogy is intended to tell you that this is all part of God's promise. It's all just part of God's plan. He's, you've already been through this land. Your great, 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 whatever, grandfather Abraham, he's already been here. And, and we're going to eventually get to a chapter when... Abraham already owns some property in the promised land. It's intended to encourage God's people on their way to Canaan, on the way to the promised land, that this God whom you serve is really going to fulfill His promises. They're part of, for that matter, this plan of bringing about the promised deliverer. Look around you. I, mean, I don't mean look around you in this room. The people in this room are okay. Most of you. But look around you. The obstacles that you see in your mind to God accomplishing His work in this world what are they? I know you're thinking of them. I know there are times when you go through your week and you think to yourself, that's insurmountable. That's a really big deal. There's no way that hurdle is going to be cleared. What objections are there to growing, building, establishing, advancing the gospel of Christ in the world today. What stands in the way of the whole gospel for the whole person? Militant Islam? Maybe the prosperity gospel preachers out there. The name it and claim it types. Maybe it's too closely associating Biblical Christianity with this political party or that political party. Maybe it's 
too closely associating with, with this person in office or that person in office or this person not in office or that person not in office. Maybe it's doubt. Maybe it's unbelief. Maybe it's science. Maybe you're thinking, well, you know, there's no way we can reconcile science with the Bible. I'm, it's doomed. We're in trouble now. Maybe it's your own doubt. Maybe it's not out there. Maybe it's in here. Maybe it's your own doubt and fear. This passage says, yeah, there are obstacles. Sure, there are obstacles to, to God fulfilling His promises in this world. None of the obstacles in this passage wins. Not a single obstacle in this passage wins. Why are we afraid of the ones in our minds? Why are we afraid of the ones in our world? No obstacle can stand against God marching His promised His promises towards fulfillment. Thirdly, God's promise is marching toward fulfillment. In history, despite the obstacles, finally, in His own time. All this week, um, I've had the Alan Parsons Project playing in my head. It's a band. If you don't know the Alan Parsons Project, you probably do. You may not realize that you do, but you know a couple of their songs. I've had time, their song Time, going through my head all this entire week. In fact, fact, I spent a little too much of it on Monday trying to figure out how I could use that song as a sermon outline. I mean, it was that sort of invasive and pervasive. You know, time keeps flowing like a river, on and on, to the sea, Till it's gone forever. You can't, you can't stop time. Some of you are going, yeah, I know this sermon's lasting in time. You can't stop time. As a parent, there are times when you want to. As a parent, there are times when you think to yourself, this age is a whole mess of fun. I'd kind of like to stop them here. Three is a lot of fun. Four is a lot of fun. It would kind of be a lot. I'd be great just to stop them right here. Of course, we know, well, then I miss out on them standing in front of a congregation and publicly professing their faith and trust in Christ. We want to stop time as parents. Sometimes at work, we feel like we have to stop time. There's not enough. How many times have you, finished, have you ended the day? There just aren't enough hours in the day. I've got this project, it's hanging over my head, it's going to kill me, and if I don't meet my deadline, the people after me can't possibly meet their deadline, and then everybody's pointing fingers and talking bad about me. If I could just, if I could just slow down time just a little bit, just today, so I could squeeze an extra hour or four out of today, I could get more work done. There are times when we think I I want to to stop time. There are times we think I have to stop time. Have you ever noticed 
then when it comes to God's work in God's world, he can't go fast enough. We sit around going, what's taking so long? Where are you? What have you been doing? Are you paying attention? I mean, we try to stop time in every area of our lives except this one. This one, we try to speed it up. Come on, God, you've got to bring about your purposes. You've got to fulfill your promises. Why aren't you? Where in the world are you? There are hundreds of years from Noah to Abraham. Depending on how the genealogies all work out, it's 1,500 to 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham. The flood has come and gone. Generations have come and gone. Are you getting antsy? you getting nervous? Are you starting to fidget in your seat just a little bit? Why isn't it happening? Where's God? Why isn't He doing what He said He was going to do? Where's this promised seed of the woman? You're holding a Bible in your hands. There are a lot more pages after the page you're looking at than before the page you're looking at. You know, even if you know nothing else about the Bible, that you're not that close to the end of the story. You can tell just by looking at the book you hold in your hands. We breathe a little sigh of relief because we know what's coming. That actually would also have been true for Moses, for his original audience, as he's writing and recording these words for the Israelites somewhere between Egypt and the Promised Land. They knew there was more of the story to come. Huh. They were in Egypt for 400 years. There's been however many years between Abraham and Moses. And from Abraham, it's going to be another 2,000 years before the promised seed would come. 1,900, 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ. Do I need to remind you it's 2017? That means we're roughly 2,000 years after Christ, and yet here we are. He hasn't come back. There's still sin in the world. We want to stop time as parents. We feel like we have to stop time and in our work. But when it comes to God accomplishing His work in His world, we're just like Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride. He stands at the top of the cliffs of insanity, looking down as the man in black is climbing up the side of the cliff. And he says, I, I don't suppose you can speed things up. And ultimately, you know, you're just going to have to wait. And Inigo Montoya says, under his breath, I hate waiting. We hate waiting on God to do his work in his world. We hate the idea of waiting on God to accomplish His purposes. This passage serves as a bit of a news flash for us. Here it is. God's obviously not in a hurry. 
the time lapse from Adam, from the promise to Abraham, from Abraham to Moses, 400 years they were in slavery in Egypt. How much longer? We're just like the psalmist, how long, O Lord? How long before you finally and fully and completely fulfill all your promises? We're carried along through a a couple hundred years of history in these verses. God has not forgotten. God has not forgotten. He's not stopped working towards accomplishing His purposes. Here we are, the first Sunday in Advent. It's a season of waiting. It's a season of anticipating. Thankfully for us, it's only four weeks. Any longer and we would completely lose it. But it's a season of of waiting and anticipating as we celebrate the birth of the promised seed. We wait four weeks, not 400 years. Not 2,000 years. But even the season reminds us that His first coming was, well, it was just that. It was a first coming. God's people waited hundreds of years, thousands of years for God to bring about this promised seed who would deliver His people from sin. And every year we wait four weeks for Christmas. We spend four weeks in Advent waiting to celebrate the first coming of Christ, which reminds us that His second coming is equally delayed. And for that matter, in our minds, unduly delayed. It's been 1925-ish years since John wrote at the end of Revelation, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Be encouraged by this passage. God is bringing about the fulfillment of all His promises. God's promise is marching toward fulfillment in time and space, in real history, despite whatever obstacles you and I think are out there And He's doing it all in His own time. Be encouraged. God is at work in you. When you think to yourself, I know He promises to sanctify me. I know He promises one day to glorify me, but you don't understand the secret sin in my life. You don't know how bad it is. My family doesn't know how bad it is. It's an obstacle far too great for God to heal. God's marching His fulfillment. God's bringing His fulfillment, His promises to fulfillment in us. He's doing it in the world around us. His kingdom growing on this earth. Yeah, you and I may look around and think, There's darkness where I live, but it's growing like crazy in places that would shock most people. 
think perhaps this little tiny church plan. He's not working fast enough. He's not working the way I think he should work. He's working in his time. This passage is intended to encourage us as we walk with him and trust in him, his work, his power, his authority to accomplish his purposes in his world, in his way, in his time. Let's pray together.